Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hello, everyone. Actually, it's Charles Marshall in for Neil this December 17th, 2020. And this episode is our cap to the uh, end of the year. And Neil and I will be back in early January. For now, though, I'm ready to dive right into the kind of first principles aspect to everything that we're doing here in the uh, foreclosure uh, defense world. You know, we all use certain words that carry a certain colloquial meaning. They they, clear, they carry uh, dictionary de- definition, otherwise known as denotative meaning. They carry a connotation, connotative meaning. Uh, we all grew up and we know what a borrower is. We know what a loan is. Payor, payee. Those are all pretty clear terms to everyone. However, here we are in the 20th century uh, eclipse in the 21st century. And the first two decades here, we have this, what should be thought of as kind of a crazy idea, uh, securitization. I'm going to give just a little bit more framing on that. First, I need to welcome uh, my co-host and great all-around presenter about all things foreclosure-related particularly from the investigative angle, and that is uh, Bill Padilla. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas to you, and uh, I wish you a Happy New Year as well now. And then you and I will be reconvening shortly in mere weeks here at uh, the Neil Garfield Show. Yeah, it's going to be a a busy 21. I can see it right now. Absolutely. I mean, Bill and I have been talking, just so the listeners will uh, appreciate what Bill and I are talking about. I don't think it's any mystery to anyone, frankly. Yes, there is a foreclosure tsunami coming. Yes, the federal moratorium still ends December 31st. Congress is kind of uh, more or less AWOL on on this whole issue and AWOL on a lot of other issues I think uh, listeners will well know. So is this issue of of lots of foreclosures going to be uh, addressed in 2021? Well, we shall see. Uh, I think the short of it is to the extent that there's no serious public policy at either the federal or the state governmental level to address the foreclosure crisis, which is already brewing, and I would say it's on the front end. I'm already seeing signs of that 
uh, here in San Diego, S- Southern California, where I'm based, uh, the moratorium on foreclosures itself is, shall we say, I'm not going to claim that it's completely evaporated yet. I do see some some sale dates scheduled for e- even late December in, in Riverside County and uh, Los Angeles County, San Diego County, not so much, but certainly early mid-January. And the unlawful detainer cases, uh, even when they're foreclosure-related, meaning there was a, a foreclosure, a a non-judicial auction sale here in California. Remember, California is a non-judicial auction state. So when those auctions happen and the former former owner goes from a an owner to an illegal tenant literally in minutes, uh, those cases are quite active already. There are motions for summary judgment scheduled as we speak here in December. There are trial scheduled as we speak here in December. Now, in Northern California, some counties are very protective. Santa Clara is one. Alameda is one. San Mateo, San Francisco, Contra Costa for the most part. Uh, So there are places in California where the moratorium is, in fact, still in place, even going into the first part of the year. However, that's being revisited on a certainly monthly basis, even weekly to some extent. And in Southern California, unless there's new public policy coming out of the uh, the counties down here, or the state actually gets their act together and, and does something uh, definitive and, and at least helpful, which really hasn't happened, most of these, these moratorium actions have come on the county level. Bottom line, it's going to get ugly. Uh, Bill and I are going to keep doing what we do. Neil is going to do what he does. And we are going to do everything we can to help homeowners. And that statement of help is not, by the way, offering legal advice. Remember, this show is just for informational purposes only. I'm simply stating that what we do and what we try to do is assist homeowners in some capacity with their legal difficulties. That doesn't mean that we're engaged in legal activity or legal advice. That depends on a bunch of different factors that are beyond the scope of this show. So the first principles that I think borrowers really tap into relate to something that Neil says a lot, and he actually has a blog post literally with the title. And remember, his his blog can be found at livinglies.me. That's living lies, similar to lending lies, but it's actually livinglies.me. And you go there, you go to his blog, a blog post literally from yesterday basically says, by admitting that you received a loan, you lose. Now, is that an overstatement? I would say for the most part, that's not an overstatement. I mean, it is more complicated than that. There is a lot of litigation that goes on. And frankly, the litigation framework, particularly in California, has been to treat these loans as if, at least at the superficial front end, 
They could be legitimate. I mean, we, we do in pleadings typically refer to the borrower and the loan and the lender. And then a lot of the pleading from that goes to the very salient legal point that none of those what should be clearly defined roles that, again, have been clear for thousands of years, not just hundreds, none of that really shows up. None of that really is observable in these Byzantine contrived complexity transactions that are the meat and potatoes of securitized mortgages. So one one aspect of this is uh, Neil and I are looking to frame uh, litigation in the coming year by literally not describing the loan or the borrower or someone else uh, who's supposed to be the lender, don't concede any of that, just as it's become an effective litigation strategy not to attach a bunch of recorded documents, again, particularly in California, to your pleadings, which would be a natural thing to do, with your legal complaint. I remember it's called a demur in California, so when you're in a non-judicial foreclosure state, you're the one suing. I've come up with a term that I think is quite accurate to describe what I used to call borrowers, listeners to this show who are interested in the information uh, that's here and see this show as, you know, essentially an informative entertainment venue, so to speak. And we we get into ideas, we get into aspects of foreclosure, and then we invite the listeners to to get legal counsel uh, wherever they may choose and on their own time and terms. So the short of it is we have foreclosure litigants uh, that are listening to the show. Now, some of them, frankly, are on the lending side. Most are on the borrower side. I think I am going to try to delimit those terms, borrower and and lender, even on this show, uh, because there's one thing we've learned in the 21st century is that words matter a lot. Whether you call it spin, whether you call it positioning, whether you call it some kind of advanced uh, linguistic trick, how you name words matters. Uh, how you frame sentences and ideas matters. So we're going to be talking about foreclosure litigants, and I'm going to turn this over to Bill now. He's going to be talking about what happens to the foreclosure litigants on our side, otherwise known as borrowers, uh, in this situation in some judicial foreclosure states, where MERS is in the intersection of the securitized loan, and the upshot and the result is basically that you, who you think of yourself as a foreclosure litigant or possibly a would-be borrower, you think you're paying off your loan. Maybe you even thought you paid off your loan. There was a real loan. But guess what? It's not a real loan, and you didn't really pay it off. And uh, Bill's going to explain that now. Go ahead and take it away, Bill. Sure. Thanks, Charles. Yeah, you know, this is uh, a very uh, 
complex subject matter, and it's not a really a one-size-fits-all uh, sort of subject matter. Um, so some of the things that um, you know I'm going to bring up here, some of it applies to some of the old loans from that vintage period that led up to the crash that we're still uh, dealing with to this day. The the loan subject to that securitization time frame of you know, the early 2000s to 2007 range, um, where people are still litigating and have been litigating for 10, 12, 13 years, and now there's been a moratorium on those particular foreclosures that are going to resume. Um, and then we have what I perceive now uh, or anticipate is going to be a new batch of loans that were originated in recent times um, that are going to have some new names, likely, um, but the key denominator with a lot of these is going to be MERS. And if you have MERS anywhere on that deed of trust, mortgage, whatever, in, in the documents, you, you automatically have a clouded title. And there's automatically going to be uh, issues because that debt, uh, uh, for many uh, reasons, has been sold and, and subject to secure claims of securitization. So I think what's really important uh, to understand here is when Neil talks about saying denying that you took out a loan, that makes a lot of people squeamish, makes a lot of attorneys squeamish. In fact, I've had, I can't even tell you how many debates uh, I've had with attorneys around the country who uh, have called me and they've uh, read some of my work and they have a lot of questions and they'll say, well, I'm just going to go into that courtroom and you know that judge is going to just box me in and say, well, did you take out a loan? Did you get the money? Yes or no? And I've been in the courtrooms. I've seen the posture of, of the judges who are listening to this, uh, these cases, and, and they get real stern and, and direct, and they look right at that borrower and say, did you take out a loan? Did you get the money? Yes or no? And it's very intimidating. And so it makes a lot of people squeamish to uh, make that denial. Um, so First of all, I think it's important to note that if you're going to make that denial as a defense, that it's important to do so right away in your answer to a complaint in a judicial setting or whatnot, but to make that um, uh, defense early on. And I don't think, in my opinion, it's, it's smart to just uh, listen to a program like this or read some blogs or whatnot and just go out there and make that denial without having uh, an expert or, you know, such as myself investigate it and look and present the facts and the findings to lay out a report so you know uh, what you're looking at before you make that sort of a defense. Because, you know, there could very well be, especially in the new round of foreclosures, uh, parties that are, are looking to foreclose that maybe doesn't have MERS or whatnot. Um, and, and it's real also uh, difficult when you're dealing with purchase money loans, okay? So uh, if you obviously go and make an offer and you buy a house and you get into it for a year or so and then you uh, are alleged to stop making payments, are, are you going to say you didn't get a loan? Well, clearly money was used to purchase that house. So, it's, it's so um, again, these are kind of complex areas here, but... When you go back, let's just say now, for example, these loans um, in the 2000s, uh, the, the real problem child loans that we're still dealing with, when 
a borrower goes in and refinances, okay, uh, and let's say they took out a loan, and, and back then there was people were refinancing because uh, very uh, often, you know, often every two to three years um, on average because the real estate prices were soaring and all this appreciation, and they were just kind of, they kept going back to the well, either to lower the rate and term on the teaser rates, whatever it was. But many folks did uh, multiple refinances over maybe five, six years during that time period. And when you look at, and we've talked about this, I've talked about this on uh, prior shows in the past, is that when you go and look at the the um, reconveyances or the satisfactions that are recorded in the land records on the loans that were refinanced, you're going to find oftentimes that the, the trustee was substituted and the reconveyance was uh, executed by MERS all by itself. Okay. Now we know, after all the years of litigation and, and, and talking about and the courts deciding what MERS's role really is, that MERS doesn't have authority to reconvey or substitute trustees. They don't negotiate the notes or the debts. And so when you have a uh, reconveyance or satisfaction issued by MERS, there, it sends up a red flag because um, – I found a, a pretty interesting article. It's a law school, uh, or written a law article at a Brooklyn Law Center uh, titled Homebuyer Beware, MERS and the Law of Subsequent Purchasers. And it's a very detailed, uh, a great paper, actually, that, that talks about the protections that people have on, uh, or the lack of protection that people have when it comes to the discharge, uh, the discharging of these debts or the satisfactions or reconveyances. So, for example, when you say that um, in a typical mortgage assignment, um, if the mortgage is assigned without the debt, it's considered to be a legal nullity, that you have to assign both the note and the debt. Well, the same kind of applies in the theory in this article is saying if MERS uh, does a, a reconveyance of a mortgage or a deed of trust in the land records, a reconveyance of the mortgage without reconveying the debt uh, and returning the note marked canceled, paid in full, you got a problem there because that debt may still exist. And this is what I've been uh, looking at for a long time now and saying, listen, if the court's going to say, did you get money, was there money there, and you're looking at a refinance transaction, there's no way to know. There's no way to know for many, many reasons. There's no way to know because so much time has elapsed. There's no evidence uh, whatsoever of, in terms of an original note that still exists in these cases. There's no verifiable accounting. Um, every time you know you get into the litigation and the meat and potatoes and you go to the other side seeking this information uh, as to who's the holder in due course of the debt, show me the accounts receivable, the whole nine yards, there literally is nothing there. So when you are talking about a so-called creditor lender, which they're not, who's attempting to foreclose on one of these refinance deeds from 07, you really have to go back toward in time and say, listen, there's no evidence that the prior debt on the refinance was ever paid off. We don't, we don't know. The only way you can kind of track it down is if you go all the way back to when you purchased the home. And, uh, and you know that there was money there, but the reconveyances from that point on, uh, especially with MERS involved, are very, very, very problematic. So in taking the position that there wasn't a loan, 
Uh, depending on what time the, 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 the documents uh, were executed um, and the parties involved, it's really important to have this reviewed and looked at. But just let's say hypothetically, again, you're, do, you're talking about a 05, 06 vintage, 07 uh, with the typical parties using MERS. It's very safe to, to take that position. No, I didn't get a loan. I don't know what the heck went down. Um, I know it was subject to securitization, but what did money show up? I don't know. And how are we going to find out about the money? Because the title companies, the escrow companies are only required to keep this information for five years. Nobody has it anymore. There's no witnesses around anymore with personal knowledge of anything. Um, and so uh, I think if, if you really want to dive into it, there is one possibility to kind of prove and show those transactions and the money from those original transactions. And what that is, is uh, the IRS has required, even back uh, uh, during those time periods that we're discussing, that title and escrow companies are required and were required to uh, file what's called a Form 8300 uh, for every transaction uh, involving $10,000 or more in the sale of real estate transactions, everything that would occur at the closing table. And those Form 8300s, um, I believe if you were able to access those by subpoena or whatever means from the IRS, those documents which were required to be filled out are going to be very telling. They're going to be telling in terms of where the money came from, their tax identification numbers, uh, there's, there, you can, anybody can pull up one of these documents and look at it. Um, but uh, this document here in these forms of the IRS is probably about the only means that you're ever going to have to actually finding out um, did money actually come in and where was it from and did it exchange hands and was it the actual lender payee named on the um, mortgage documents. And I'll tell you right now, it, it very likely uh, is never going to match. Uh, where this money comes from, where it came from, it's never going to match up with uh, who is named as the payee. So, um I guess in a, in a nutshell, it's very important to do your due diligence if you're going to take this position um, and you're going to challenge that you did not get an actual loan. And that due diligence, I think, starts with making lots of formal requests, very uh, pointed discovery, even pre-litigation discovery, having this stuff reviewed by professionals. And um, and then at the end of the day, uh, you're going to put that other side in into the position of proving their uh, the burden of proof of their case. And we all know uh, very well that uh, the emperor has no clothes. They are not going to be able to overcome uh, that fact and prove that there actually was a loan and that they purchased that loan for value and that it's a receivable on their books and records. It just simply does not exist. And so do your homework. Charles? Uh, I mean, I think that's an excellent, excellent take, Bill. Uh, and you know, this is this is a very uh, convoluted set of transactions that we on our side are 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 basically tasked with unraveling, unwinding, examining, dissecting, and then from that putting in plain English that the other side who, who's responsible ultimately for the Byzantine convoluted contrived complexity 
these these mega banks, mega lend, lenders largely, that you have to unravel what they're doing. And if you deny from the beginning that essentially there's a legally cognizable event by which you should pay these people, then theoretically you're, you're in some ways shifting the burden to them to show, okay, there really was money exchanged with this institutional layer, with this morass, this alphabet soup securitized trust, you know, with a 40 letter name and, you know, 20 words in their name that that entity really did take money for value and that entity really is accountable. It's absolutely critical to repeat what you mentioned. And that is, and you know, this is something that I think Neil emphasizes regularly. And I certainly agree with him. Uh, No loan is sold in these transactions. Nobody records a purchase of a loan obligation and nobody maintains any account or some people would say accounts receivable. Those are critical things because you would see them in any loan arrangement, you know, in the again, in the old world, you borrow money from somebody, then you're taking uh, money from them to yourself. Typically you would give some kind of a note or confirmation of what the amount is and then there would be repayment terms. And I think it's important also to keep in mind that method of doing loan transactions, I mean, literally for tens of thousands of years, that's, that's what you had. So the bottom line is we've had a revolution in lending, literally, in the 21st century. And it started in, you know, the 20th century because mortgages were very rare except in a really limited capacity until the early 20th century. Remember, credit cards didn't really come into common use until the 1960s. So the ability to loan money used to be quite limited, and it was based on a real relationship between the lender and the borrower typically. And yes, there were mortgages even, you know, in the late 1800s, but very, very limited. They became more common as the 20th century went on. But typically, there would be a real relationship of some kind between the borrower and the mortgage lender. They would, and mortgages were loaned from savings and loan. Remember the Glass-Steagall Act prohibited big institutional lenders and banks from extending home loans. And the reason they did that is precisely anticipating the problems that we have now with these securitized loans. The reason they did that is so there would be a real relationship between the borrower and the lender, and there would not be huge amounts of speculation. And basically what amounts to uh, all the financial derivatives that you see in the mortgage loan industry. That didn't exist when big financial institutions and big brokerage firms, et cetera, couldn't extend home loans. That all changed 
I mean, Lehman Brothers is a classic example. All the loans they originated in the early 2000s, and yet really they were just, uh, uh, you know, a financial securities firm uh, involved in all kinds of complex financial derivatives of every kind. And then all of a sudden they're loaning money for home mortgages. Uh, I don't need to tell listeners to this show how that worked out. It worked out very badly for everyone. Well, I, I have so, one last quick note here, uh, Charles. Sorry to interrupt you, but in 2003, the Financial uh, Crimes Enforcement Network out of the Treasury uh, sent a warning about uh, and proposed rules about uh, persons involved in real estate closings and settlements, about money laundering risks. And uh, they did that in 2003 because they saw a problem. Guess what? No subsequent action was ever taken based on those proposals. They just no one did anything about it. And this is why we saw the spike during from 03 to 2011. Uh, there was a massive spike in, in uh, suspicious activity reports being filed through the title companies. Uh, that's yeah, that's, that's uh, astounding. So it that's, tells you you got you got, you got money problems. Yeah, that's excellent information. We're we're just about out of time, and and my closing seconds here. I'm going to invite listeners to go to the internet and look up the San Diego County law case. I don't have the uh, the site for it uh, uh, off the tip of my uh, fingers, but it's COVID related, and I'm going to explain in early January how that relates to uh the coming uh mortgage moratorium going away and all the developments so merry christmas and happy new year to everyone thank you uh bill and i will be with everyone and so will bill in the early new year all right thank you charles the opinions expressed on the neil garfield show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.